Hey everybody, it is another special edition episode of the Running Rogue Podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas with now what is episode two in our mini-series on what we're calling the Human Performance Project with Dr. Noah Moose and Jason Brooks, the resident trail guru here at Rogue. Welcome back to the show, Jason and and Dr. Moose. Thanks, Thanks. Chris. It's good to have you both on. It's it's kind of interesting to me, the conversation we had last time in episode one, which was really about stress. We teed up the general theme of our mini series here on human performance. Talked mostly about stress in that one. A lot of what came up was the mind-body connection and how it's more powerful than we might expect. Today, we're going to drill into that a little bit more and talk about what you guys are calling the model of degeneration, which is basically how things start to break down for someone and sometimes that starts mentally sometimes it starts other ways but we'll get into that in a second but what's interesting is that after we had that conversation i'm starting to see these insights in a lot of places one that was very obvious was i actually read a book coming back from a little spring trip spring break trip i did with the family to the beach read a book called elite minds by stan beecham I would highly recommend that book for those that are listening, and I'm going to try to get him on the podcast because he talks a lot about mental training. He's a sports psychologist by training, has a PhD in psychology, but specializes in working with the best sports athletes on how to improve their mental game. Has worked with runners, golfers, kickers, football players, all levels of sport, and he had a whole section of his book actually on the mind-body connection coming to it from a sports psychology standpoint. And he told a couple of anecdotes in there that, that I think will be powerful for us to tee up this topic today. One of those was about the University of Georgia basketball team. And Tubby Smith was the coach at the time. I think he later went on to coach at Kentucky and has moved around since then. But he was the coach there. Stan Beecham was working with various coaches in their sports department at the University of Georgia, including the football team. And one of the things that he noticed about the University of Georgia's basketball team was that they were they were less injury prone than other than other teams. And and the the data sort of seemed to back that up based on what he looked at. So he went and he talked to Tubby Smith. He said, Hey, you guys don't seem to get hurt very often. Well, What's the deal with that? Do you have some sort of magic recovery formula or special things you're doing to try to prevent injury? And, and W. Smith's response to him was, I just tell the guys that we don't get injured. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. And and at first, Beecham sort of dismissed that as, well, okay, that's a ridiculous response. You can't just say you're not going to get injured and have your team not get injured. Sure. But as he got deeper or further away from the conversation and reflecting back on it now as, as an expert in the field, he believes that it actually probably was true that Tubby Smith had created this culture that was to say, look, we're a healthy team. We don't get injured. We pride ourselves on that. And then it manifested itself in the context of the team. And so he actually, reflecting on that conversation, believed later in his career that there was probably something to that, just that mentality of the coach 
saying, hey, we're going to be an injury-free team and then that being manifested in, in reality. So that was one story that he told. The second was about a sports psychology conference that he went to and he saw an orthopedic surgeon presenting in one of the slots. And he thought, well, that's weird. Mostly it's psychologists and people from the field that are talking at these conferences. Why is an orthopedic surgeon talking at the conference? And it happened to be one of the best ACL surgeons in the in the world based out of Colorado. Kobe Bryant had been worked on by him and a bunch of other athletes. And so he thought, well, this guy's got to have something interesting to say. So he went to the the talk and the talk was all about how he believed that all accidents and injuries started in the mind, even as an MD, a, an orthopedic surgeon who actually works on fixing these things. And that there were no accidents that were accidents. How we got to this conclusion in years of practice was when he would ask people what happened when they got an injury, he expected mostly that they would come to him and say, well, this happened and that happened. I slipped, I fell. They would give the logistics of the injury. But he said very rarely did they. He said most often they actually gave their emotional state. <laughs> or talked about the scenario around by which they put themselves in that situation. Like I was just fighting with my wife and then this happened. I slipped on a something on the street or whatever it may be. <clears throat> and all the time, these injury stories were connected to their emotional and, and their mental state of mind and not just the X, Y, Z of what happened to cause the injury. And so more and more as he began to study it and pick up on these trends, he also came to believe that that was true, that there were truly no accidents, that basically everything started somehow in the mind and or with some, some disruption in our emotional state that then ultimately led to an injury or an issue, an accident, whatever it may be. And so... With those two anecdotes, it sort of took me back to our conversation on the last episode to say, look, there is something to this mind-body connection. Even the smartest people in the field, sports psychology and then orthopedic surgery, are saying that there's something to it. So with that as a bit of a preamble, what do you want to talk about today, Jason? <laughs> so um, there's a little bit more than just the mind-body, as we alluded in the first episode, right? So a lot of this can come from uh, diet and nutrition or from physical exercise. And so what we want to look at is as we, so our total stress load becomes too much and basically we kind of move down the road to a, a disease state, we want to flesh out that, what, what Noah likes to call the model of degeneration. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to talk about how maybe we can identify where we are on that path um, and then what we can do to start to sort of claw our way back to a healthier state. Before we drill into the specifics, Noah, give us just context on this idea, the model of degeneration. What does it mean? Why are you thinking about it this way? What can it inform as yeah. a part of the process? And then we could talk about 
how things can start to go wrong. Yeah. So I, I, it's kind of interesting, you know, what you just talked about, like the mind body connection, those kind of things is I think my model of degeneration, it's like, what we're going to do is we're going to go through stepwise, kind of how I see basically everything from a typical like ankle injury or something along those lines go from, you know, how, how all these things kind of can create this, this basically model of degeneration, but stress is actually combined with e at each one of these stages. So it's like everything we're going to talk about, it's like that combined with the stress load of, you know, what we talked about with like training life, all those kind of things. And I think it's kind of interesting what you were saying about, um, the orthopedic surgeon. Right. And I think we kind of hit on that last week when I was, I was sharing a little bit about the uh the the ptsd study with cancer patients with one of the non-for-profit groups that i actually um I, I support and they do a lot of research on on the brain and what they were showing that we we talked about it last week where they they showed that when they would basically these are people who recovered from cancer right they they their cancer had been in remission they were cancer free by all me you know by by all you know typical ways that the medical world looked at it but what they did is when they had them write out their diagnosis story, they basically talk about what's going on in the room, you know, tell you know, what you were going through with your family. And then they fMRI'd their brains while they were going through this whole process. And they showed the typical stress centers still lit up, even though they didn't have cancer and they'd been through the whole process. There was a still a stress pattern related to that. And then I also talked about how the first time they actually saw the cerebellum, which is the motor pathway in the brain, was actually affected as well, too. And so we know that like, as far as like that orthopedic was saying is that stress actually affects our motor patterns as well too. So it makes sense that something like a running injury or, you know, a basketball injury or something like that is, is kind of predicated by some type of a stress or that's what people would say is because that, that injury is kind of a, you know, like a PTSD type, type of thing. So they're going through the whole PTSD process. And I think one of the cool things that they actually showed with this study is that not only did they just take a look at these cancer patients, but they used a technique um, called neuroemotional technique that they're studying at Thomas Jefferson University Medical School. They actually just got another big grant to continue studying how it affects the brain because they were able to show things that they hadn't ever shown in research before. But they actually went through um, a number of treatments with these PTSD patients, and then they read them the exact same story and the stress response in the brain was not there anymore. So a lot of those areas that had lit up previously, uh, they weren't there anymore. So I think the mind-body connection, it does have this whole, like, it, it's it, str like the stress is like the facilitator. It's like the gas pedal, right? You know, that's why you know, we're going to talk about diet and digestion, inflammation, all these different things that as I work with patients that we see, you know, as people go to break down from just a typical, like, I'm just a little bit inflamed or maybe I'm not recovering good to, oh man, now like I'm, you know, I'm going through like menopause and I'm having tons of hot flashes and all those kind of things or, and then into, you know, I've got this chronic, chronic fatigue, autoimmune processes, these kind of things that walk in. And for me, I always talk that I, I, I don't treat any like condition in my office. It's like, we have people who have you know, everything from, you know, an athlete that rolls an ankle to people who have had lupus and are in chronic pain and, and all those. And I tell them I, every time they come in is we're not, we're not treating your, your condition. We're looking at the, what's going on underlying in the body. And so I think sometimes like this model, and I think Jason found it really interesting when I kind of laid out how I think about, um, 
basically how the the body like progresses into everything from neurodegenerative diseases and autoimmunity and all those things and then how the body heals too and there there's certain things as as people are going through the healing process that i think that they need to be aware of that can be happening so maybe you know if they feel like they're doing really good and then they have like a little bit of a setback it doesn't necessarily mean that they're like that, that they're going back to where they were before but there's kind of almost a retracing process that has to happen in in healing depending on where you're at in certain things and so so i think stress is the it's basically the gas pedal on how quickly you can get there and a lot of times it's the trigger that causes this whole cascade to like accelerate really really quickly so i think it's always important to talk talking about the mind body connection if people are interested in the research you can the, uh, the one foundation um is the the company or is the the um, the organization that you can research i think it's the onefoundation.org and then if you're looking for somebody who does the actual technique that they used in the study you can go to netmindbody.com and look at a practitioner search if you're if you're interested in after you read the research or you know some of the things that we've been talking about here you know no matter where you're at you can you can find somebody who can help you identify and work in those areas so when we're talking about degeneration can we define that for a second because obviously there's a spectrum here yes. you know on the very <laughs> extreme there's extreme health conditions autoimmune issues right but then but there's baby steps yes. you know, and probably many steps to get to that point. So we're talking really about that whole spectrum from maybe feeling a little bit sick to getting some sort of injury to then all the way down the path of real health issues. Is yeah. that fair to say? That, that's fair to say. And I'm, I'm going to throw something out there that I've, I've seen oftentimes in um, working with everything from high level athletes to people who are really sick. And Oftentimes, the, a lot of my patients that are training at a really high level, if you, compare, if you were to just kind of block the names out and any of the history out and you look at the blood work that a lot of these people who are pushing their bodies to the highest limits and you compare it to somebody who's very chronically ill, there, there's a lot of similarities. Like I've had a number of, of athletes, I mean, that were making world cross teams and all of that. And I, I, they send me their blood work. They're like, Hey, my, my doctor doesn't really know what's going on. Can you take a look at this? I, I, I probably get like once a month, a female athlete that will get blood work drawn somewhere in the country. And all of a sudden they want to test them for leukemia, like because their white blood cell count is so low and all that. And they call me freaking out. And, right. uh, and, and so I'm like, okay, this is typically the process. You know, obviously we want to, you know, support your blood quality, do these kind of things. And I, you know, I'm always like, go through the, the whole protocol that the doctor wants just to make sure. But it's not uncommon for an elite athlete to, to call with like this crazy blood work saying that my doctor said, you know, this might be X, Y, Z, or you might just be really stressed out. And I, I would say the, the leukemia question is, is one of those ones that y you would be surprised. I mean, it's, it's monthly at least where I'll get a, a, a call from an elite female athlete or somebody on that spectrum that's like, hey, I've got this um, so-and-so. My coach was like, why don't you talk to this guy and see, you know, have him look at it a little more and, and, and that. So, so the it, outcomes are similar in that case and that they have similar blood work. Are the pathways to get to those issues the same? It, it's typically because the amount of load that they're putting on their body, they're basically just putting the, you know, it is. It's just they're accelerating through uh, 
some of the these the, the the way that we see the body break down they're just kind of accelerating through but the nice thing when you're some versus like, a chronic illness patient versus a uh like an elite athlete is you know the way that the the elite athlete they're they're masters at adaptation and they can heal so they'll recover back through that pathway much quicker whereas somebody let's say that has like uh, you know, some type of a like chronic pain, chronic fatigue pattern that may present the same way, you know, with some of the findings like a low white blood cell count, anemia, those things. It just takes them a lot longer to heal. Whereas the elite athlete, that blood work may shift in like a month. And typically it will when you get them to take their training load down, support with some of the nutrients that help to, their immune system to recover. They'll, they'll accelerate back, you know, to where their, their training's back normal. Their, everything kind of balances out. And, uh, and that's why we get referrals from a lot of doctors that are working with athletes is because, you know, they're, they're freaking out. And then they'll say, you know, hey, tech with this guy, too, just to see if there's anything from like a nutritional standpoint we can do to kind of support this whole process. So we have a really great relationship with a lot of, of practitioners when they're like, man, we don't know, you know, you're like a lot of people don't know maybe how to handle athletes. And so we kind of work together to make sure that 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 athlete is handled well. But the, the thing that I typically see is is the athlete, they're, they're just their body can recover quicker. So they're able to basically retract through these steps that we're going to discuss um, a lot quicker than, say, somebody with like a chronic autoimmune illness, something like that. Their underlying foundation is strong. Yeah. Yeah. Their constitution is is is, yeah. is better. So before we let, lay out the flow chart of this model, Jason, I wanted you to tell us how this whole thing came up. You know, as we alluded in the last episode, the, the whole idea for this series came up with you guys running together on a Friday, talking about everything under the sun. So how do we get to this point of talking about this idea of the model of degeneration? So <laughs> um, we... One of the random topics we got into early on in running, which will come up in a later episode, I'm sure, is, is biodentistry and talking about uh, mostly root canals, but other dental procedures that are really common, especially in the United States, that can lead to chronic infection and, and multiple problems, cancer, autoimmunity, strange things. And I had just watched the root cause documentary on netflix which unfortunately has been taken down since then and a friend joined us for the run who's a brain cancer survivor and at the beginning of the run i just i brought up root cause because i was like you know i have some root canals and i have a li like some strange health issues that could maybe be connected to that i don't know but i want it's something i want to investigate and so I was excited. I was telling Noah that I saw it and, and, you know, that I was interested in everything. And our friend, you know, starts talking to us about it and it turns out he has some root canals. And um, so, you know, I'm just kind of thinking, it's a question you should ask. Maybe this is something that you could explore. Um, because Root Causes a documentary and talks about the link between root canals and cancer. At least that's one of the topics that they discuss quite a bit. Not right. just brain cancer, but also breast cancer. Correct. Autoimmune disease, autoimmune, all kinds of stuff. It's, yeah. it's correlation. It's not necessarily causation. Correct. That hasn't been proven, but there's some eerie correlations out there between these things, and there's dentists now that actually focus on treating these things other ways as a result. Right. And I've heard stories, you know, personal stories of people that have fundamentally changed their lives 
through getting rid of infected root canals. And so I think that there, there could be something to it, um, at least for certain people there, it looks like there certainly is. And so anyway, our, our, this friend of ours loves to just kind of push back and play devil's advocate. So he started to challenge us a bit on, you know, this is correlation. It's not causation. How could a root canal have some connection to cancer? And so I don't know, we kind of fell backwards into the model of degeneration as, as Noah loves to do is, you know, let me just go ahead and explain to you exactly how the body Let's works. Lay it out. Let me Let's <laughs> lay it out. So then, you should ask. <laughs> so then what did you lay out? So, so basically uh, I was really interested in the whole like dental thing. I've, it's kind of something that I, I haven't really shared too much, but over the, the past few years, um, I've had just a lot of like fatigue, tiredness, those kind of things. And I was at a, a conference and I had heard this medical doctor speak and present, and he was actually presenting on parasites uh, of all things. And when I was, I, I, I did a trip to China in uh, 2012 for the International Symposium on Integrated Medicine. There was a group of about 30 doctors from the U.S. that were invited to, to this symposium. And I just felt like, and so... Uh, circling back around to that, I actually, they were serving delicacies uh, one night. And it's funny, I was talking to one of my patients who travels internationally. And, uh, and, and he was like, oh, so you basically did like the fear factor of, of eating food, right? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. And so there was one day at lunch where I was eating what I thought was um, beef and potatoes. And I was like, man, this just doesn't taste right. And so I'm eating and eating. And so I call the waiter over and I ask him what it was. And it turned out it was um, congealed pig's blood and tofu. And uh, I immediately just kind of sick to my stomach. And then for the next like three or four days, I just I don't know if it was like psychosomatic or like I I really started to feel like rather like ill, like and and so it took about four or five days. And and then that kind of shook out and I was okay, But Ever since I've gotten back from there, I, I really didn't quite feel like feel well. Um, I just felt like my energy wasn't quite where it was. And so I I'd work, you know, being in the profession that I'm in, you know, we're at different conferences and I know a lot of different doctors and, and everybody kept coming back to you have a parasite infection. Um, and so I, you know, I tried a bunch of natural like anti-parasitic stuff and, you know, it would help for a while and all that. And then I heard this medical doctor um, speak at this conference and he laid out, he, he, he does a lot of work with, uh, his name's, um, Simon Yu. He's wrote a book called, um, Accidental Cure. Um, an amazing book. If anybody's interested in, in checking out some of the real crazy things that, that mm. he sees, he, he's kind of a, a doctor of, you know, that, that works with, with a lot of people who have all kinds of crazy autoimmune cancer, those kind of things. And so he, so I was like, you know what? I was like, I think I just need to go see this guy. And he told me that basically I had two things wrong. He's like, yeah, you definitely had a parasite infection. And so he put me on a anti-parasite um, protocol of medications. And it was, it was a pretty intense process. But in the other second thing that he identified was actually I had had cavitations in all four of where my wisdom, uh, wisdom teeth sites were. And so that's kind of where I first got introduced to what's a cavitation. So basically where they where they take your wisdom teeth out, um, essentially it didn't heal correctly. And there was actually a pocket of bacterial infection 
that was just laying under the surface where my wisdom teeth used to be. So essentially that tissue filled in with like granular tissue and bacteria and all that kind and, all, and those kind of things. And so it was this issue that was just kind of depleting, like chronically there, depleting my immune system. And over the past like couple of years, my blood work, you know, as I kind of went along from 2012 and then my, our office really grew and there was some stress combined with, with that whole process of trying to facilitate, you know, the growth of an office and running an office and, and, and doing that. You know, the past like two or three years, I just noticed there was a couple markers in my blood that just kept trending down. And if you ever study blood work, there's a few signs, they call them the ominous signs. And essentially when they start to drop to where they like to a certain level, it's, it's very suspicious of like pre-cancer or cancerous process. And so of course, like I did the thing that I would hate all of my patients to do. Google. I just, no, I just ignored it. (laughs) (laughs) I did not Google it. I was just like, I know what's going on. Like I I know (laughs) what's going on, but I don't want to admit that maybe I don't know what to do or what's going on. And so after I heard, you know, Dr. Yu's presentation like three years ago at this this conference, I was like, you know what, I'm just going to talk to this guy because it sounds like this, you know, knowing what had happened to me in China, this could be. But he basically told me, he said, yeah, the, 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 the parasites are an issue and they're affecting your, your health. But he's like the bigger contributor to all of the, the other issues that you're having is your teeth. And he's like, you're never going to get better if you don't fix this. So that's where the when the biologic dentistry became super interesting to me. And we have um, a couple awesome biologic dentists in Austin. And so um, actually one of the doctors that was in root cause was um, is in Marble Falls, which is about 45 minutes outside of Austin. So I went out and I met with Dr. Nunnally um, and, and had this conversation. And they're like, yeah, it looks like there's definitely some infection there. So like, so what they ended up doing was opening those up, scooping out the, the bad bacteria, and then they used what's called platelet-rich fibrin, and they injected that in there, which basically seals up the, the site, and fibrin is what causes blood clots in, in the body. And so it actually helps to heal those whole sites basically immediately, and then what they did is they sent the, the, what they scraped out of there in to be cultured into a lab. And I think that, if I remember right, there's 20 bacteria that they tested for in this test and i had 19 at a pathologic level wow. and so when we kind of did the review of everything he's like there everybody was like yeah you 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 were gonna you know just continue to go on this roller coaster of health until you got this fixed and so that's that was kind of uh, you know the, then jason brought up he's like hey have you seen the you know do you see this documentary and then we got into discussing like that whole thing and and just knowing that like I had had some signs that were, you know, and I, I like to think that I'm, you know, pretty decently healthy, you know, young, working out, eating right, taking care of those kind of things. But there are certain triggers, too, that can that that can happen. And if, if you know, and so you've got to kind of go through this, the, the, the whole healing cycle as well. So over the past like year, year and a half, I've been going through this whole healing cycle of almost like and that's where it's like we lay out kind of how things break down and then how it, it kind of, you've got to reverse through the healing cycle as well to go through the full healing so cycle. So now everybody who's ever had their wisdom teeth out is freaking out. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of deadly bacteria do I have living under my gums? Including me. So, but we'll skip through that for a second. Lay out the concept of this model of degeneration, the flow chart. So, yeah, so the way I look at it is, is it kind of starts with like diet, digestion and elimination. 
And, and so if you're not eating the right foods, or if you're eating the right foods and you're not digesting them, or you're not eliminating them correctly, that initially becomes the first kind of chronic stress. So we kind of hit on a little bit of that. And I think our next podcast, we're really going to dive in deep into this subject uh, next week. So basically, if you like if you're either eating bad food or food that your body can't digest, there's it's going to create inflammation or it's going to go down further into your digestive tract undigested. And then there's something down there that's going to digest it, whether it be like a bacteria, parasite, fungus. And a lot of times that's how people develop the Like what we would call an imbalanced microbiome or dysbiosis, which just basically means too much bad stuff, not enough good stuff. And so that's kind of the initial trigger is if you can't like, if you're not eating the right foods or you can't digest them or you can't eliminate them correctly, they basically start to rot, putrefy, and, and feed all the stuff that, that you know, shouldn't get fed there. And then from there, that actually causes a, a generalized upregulation and inflammation in the body. And so that's where you start to see systemic inflammation start to just raise and rise up. Um, and so from there, that inflammation we know is that, that's what everybody says, is at the root of almost every condition from like diabetes to heart disease to cancer and all of that. And so that's where diet and digestion affect inflammation. Inflammation then goes on to create a dysregulation in your blood sugar and your blood chemistry. And so it can create dysregulation in, in blood sugar, create anemias, and, uh, and, and then just these small imbalances in your blood chemistry. And then as those blood chemistry things start to shift even further, you start to go in this pattern of basically neurohormonal dysregulation where your hormones, your, your body's more in a fight or flight state. So you switch more from this, um, you know, like parasympathetic state more into like a sympathetic dominance. And there's basically two, when we, when we talk about like hormones and stress, your, your hormones all start with cholesterol and then they're, they're made into a couple intermediate hormones. And then they basically have one of two fates. They're either going to go to your sex hormones. So like your testosterones, estrogens, you know, the things that kind of help the reproductive side, or they're going to go to stress hormone. And so what we'll see is this neurohormonal dysregulation where more of it is funneled to the, the stress hormone side to kind of keep your body fighting and, and all of that, and less to, you know, the, the reproductive hormones that kind of make you feel good, give your energy, give your sex drive, help you recover, all those kind of things. And so I think that, that once you see that shift start to happen, um, that's really where dysregulation starts to, that, that's where it, it takes a lot longer for the body to kind of shift back. As I always draw this line too, um, when I'm talking about uh, neurohormonal dysregulation, and then the next step is immune dysfunction. And once you cross that line from neurohormonal dysregulation, it's like that, there, there's like a wall. Right. So when you get into this whole immune process and your immune system starts to break down and wear down and you start to have, you know, your chronic fatigues and chronic infections and your those kind of things, it, it takes a significant amount of energy to go backwards from there. So the first ones, you know, when you go diet, digestion, inflammation, blood sugar, um, anemia, functional blood chemistry changes, neural hormonal dysregulation. You can really accelerate back from those really quickly. Typically, you know, we look at an athlete that comes in with like an anemia or maybe that they're like 
part of their like training load. They're not, you know, they're, they're just, they're, they're, they're not eating the right things. And so their blood sugar is a little off. We give them, you know, we give them some dietary recommendations. They balance that out. You know, they, they go back and recover really quickly. But when you start to see like, like infection and inflammation and those kind of things start to infiltrate, you know, that's really where you, you, you have to let the person know, okay, Hey, it's going to be a little longer than is ideal. And you may kind of waffle back and forth, those kind of things. And then from chronic immune dysregulation, it will basically turn into an autoimmune process. And then, you know, when autoimmune processes go on for too long, eventually they'll, they'll degrade down into either like a neurodegenerative condition where your body just breaks down or some type of a cancerous process. And so that was, that was my kind of like, at least my theory. And so, you know, that, that was, that was kind of what I laid out. I was like, here's kind of how this whole thing works. And so you know, like a, some type of an infection or a chronic infection, you could jump into that immune stage, you know, if you get a parasite infection or you get, you know, there, something happens where, where you, you know, you have an infection that just goes undiagnosed, you can really accelerate and it will dysregulate all of that stuff. But, you know, so there, there's, you know, there, there's other ways, but that was kind of my basic on like how like your diet and digestion are so, in, like diet digestion and those things are so important and how they can push you down this whole thing. Because I think a lot of people have a tough time conceptualizing about like, how can what I put in my mouth make me sick? And so I always like to lay that model out when we're talking about diet and, and all of that, because that's kind of the, the stepwise process of how you, you get chronic, you know, basically like, a, like some type of uh, a, a chronic condition, you know, or more of like a lifestyle-based disease, something like how diabetes happens, you know, those kind of things. And then how it leads to eventually, you know, neurodegeneration where they might have to amputate or something like that. Cause people have a tough time kind of conceptualizing like how they can go from like high blood sugar to, you know, like amputation and those kind of things. So I found this really useful because I, so I started getting into health and lifestyle and thinking about health coaching a lot more when I discovered the ketogenic diet and the connection between the ketogenic diet and supposed benefits for both um, maybe reversing autoimmunity and neurodegenerative disease, but more than anything, staving it off. And so I started by kind of experimenting with the ketogenic diet. My my family and my wife's family has a history of Alzheimer's. Um, and on my side of the family, also my dad suffered from manic depression or bipolar disorder for most of my life. And so I kind of looked at, you know, and then he eventually deteriorated into um, Alzheimer's at a really young age. And so I've kind of worried like, man, I'm on this neurodegenerative cancer train. A lot of my family members have had cancer. And so I thought, I'm going to start experimenting with some of this stuff. And I tried the ketogenic diet for a little while, uh, really as an experiment. And then I just went back to how I was eating. But it gave me this great window into um, how the way just my eating alone affected my life and how far you can kind of get down this path. And I talked in the last episode about how I had become pretty insulin resistant. And so I, I could figure out especially when I made a switch back this year to the paleo diet, I could see that I was suffering from chronic inflammation. My blood sugar was crazy out of whack. Um, I haven't looked at my blood chemistry in a while, but I'm sure if I, if I could have had a snapshot at it, it would have been 
it would have been messed up and i can tell now that i had some hormonal disruption dysregulation especially around sort of dietary issues like um, satiety hormones and other hormones that can get a little jacked up from your diet and so it helped me both kind of see like what the end game is see where i was on the spectrum toward illness and then also think about okay it's not too bad yet. I could reverse some of this. And then eventually we'll get to talk about, or maybe we talk a little bit about it today, but how genetics can affect your road on, or on this path and, um, and maybe like how predisposed you are to get down this pathway and what you can do about it and, and some of the things you need to look out for. One of the things I think that's important in this discussion, and by the way, on your on your model stress and sort of the mental components are the grease right yeah kind of so aggress- help you flow <laughs> yeah. between so stress is, the stress is the gas pedal yeah. down that down yeah, yeah. that pathway so yeah. <laughs> but what, i think one of the things that's most important about this discussion is for people to to begin to understand the link between all these things and realize that there's actually very little randomness when it comes to how you're feeling and for people to become more aware of how they're feeling and then therefore aware of all these different potential connections that might be contributing to that effect. As an example, I have an athlete that I coach right now who's, who's been struggling over the last three to four weeks feeling good in workouts. He hasn't, I don't believe really had any good workouts in the last three to four weeks, including this past Saturday. We had a big long run with pace work. It did not go well. And so we were exchanging emails about it over the weekend. And my question was to him was, Hey, you need to go get some blood work done because I think there probably is something going on in his world that is, that is somewhere along the pathway. I, I'm not a practitioner who can help him figure that out, but I can point him to those resources. But I think that's the message here is that if you're feeling bad or fatigued or you can't, you have struggle, you have trouble getting up in the morning, you're having bad workouts, you're whatever, you're having some issue that is kind of always bothering you. It's probably something along this pathway that's in your that's in your way and understanding the connections I think is and recognizing the issue is probably the first step to say, look, something's not right. Versus I think it's really easy for us to normalize this stuff and just sort of say, Well, that's just something I've always had to deal with. Right? Like your issue. Like if you weren't a practitioner in your in the world that you're in, you know, setting your initial denial aside, then you would have never discovered that this was a problem for you or at least thought, hey, may, you know, maybe I should figure out this dentistry thing, right? And so then what would have happened? If you were just a normal person, you would have normalized that feeling and just thought, well, this is something I'm always going to have to deal with. You know, drink more coffee, whatever, yeah. right? <laughs> it's like, like, and then you would have made it wor- potentially made it worse by just adding stimulants or something to the mix to try to kind of offset that feeling of fatigue and being run down, right? Yeah. So oftentimes I think, and I, we talk about this in my practice a lot is, is oftentimes like those feelings of like fatigue and tiredness and those kind of things, even if you're training, 
the, the people, you know, a lot of times I, I get athletes that are like, oh, they, they, it's just like, the, you know, my coach said it's in my head or, you know, it's just, it's in my head. They get labeled as a head case. And, and very rarely, I mean, we, we just spent a lot of time talking about the, the mind-body connection, but I've actually come to realize that, like, very rarely is that actually the case. Like, there are, so there are some people that, yeah, they get so stressed out around an event, but it's also because that stress then plays into driving, like, some type of a neurologic or a, like, physiologic trigger in their body and I've actually found that if you like, you look and you try to strengthen up their your, their 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 blood, their nutrition, you try to get the the raw materials there, like that they can do it. Like this is a very common thing that I see in uh, in a lot of my like high school athletes is because a lot of high school athletes are they're not eating the best diets, they're training way too hard. You know they're they're trying to do their high school workout and then they're with a club team and then they got weight sessions and they got speed coach and like all these people and they're doing like you know 20 or 30 workouts a week and, yeah. and that you come in and they're just fried and then of course their their head coach is like oh it's in your head right. you know and, and so i very rarely seen it be like this complete like psychological breakdown in those areas so oftentimes i always tell people they're like it's not in your head it's in your cells so we just have to fix your cells and then everything else will do good. And what you, you'll typically see is, is people know how to work hard, but when you're beaten down and tired, you can't work. And right. so when you fix those things, you, you know, you got that bravado, you got everything going, you're going you're gonna to work hard. And so that's kind of what I've seen actually in my practice is it's typically not in their head, it's in the cells. And so when you can work on that, you can really improve their quote unquote toughness of the athlete. But. But I think part of it that's tricky is understanding those connections and where to look and where to go, you know, because if I'm feeling this way, is it my teeth? Is it my diet? Is it stress? Is it so how do you if you're having these types of issues, how do you start to pinpoint the, the real root causes when when you never know without having access to a dentist in Marble Falls who looks at this stuff or a person who understands, you know, the right connections, what do you do? So it is, it is a challenge. And, and I'm going to say, I, I will say that is, is there's a lot of, when it comes to athletes, there's, there's a lot of people don't know how to handle them. And so I think it's important for, and that's what um, my wife, Natalie, and I are trying to do is we're trying to create some resources with the, the Human Nutrition Project and, and those kind of things for people who maybe don't have access to, you know, somebody who practices like we do or, you know, you're, you're out somewhere else. How you can start to, to kind of take a look at some of these things from like a nutritional and functional level. And so I think it's it's. You know, it's really important to get guidance and really like somebody that you you trust. And what my always biggest thing with people is when you're shopping for doctors is just ask other people like, hey, you know, somebody's had this issue. You seem to like be running really well. What are you doing? And and everybody kind of has their, you know, their their pieces of the puzzle with their training that they like. And so I think part of it is is trying to build your team around you of, of people that can help. And, but so that is one of the things that it is really hard. You need somebody who can like skillfully navigate you to these different places. I mean, you could go through and you could try to X, Y, Z, check off everyone yourself, 
but you need you really it's it's important to have somebody who's who's trained in in that area to to look through it and then that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to create some more um information and resources for people who maybe don't have access to somebody who's specifically used to working with athletes or maybe handles these kind of things and and that's that's kind of one of the things that I've I've wanted to branch out is to create some more information for this kind of thing. What what I've seen in myself and anecdotally with others is you know so we talked about how easy it is for us to normalize stress and um I've I've tried to understand stress a lot since my time in the Marine Corps and my deployments to Iraq because like I figured I got stressed the fuck out and those experiences and I kind of wanted to understand stress and a lot of the markers that we're taught to look for today like back pain or you know any any sort of number of manifestations that you might have are going to show up typically after you're suffering from a lot of chronic stress so if you're seeing chronic fatigue or you're having trouble with your libido or you're having odd back pains um, then it's a good time to step back and just start to assess stress in your life we've joked that um if you fail to work we should like implement a rule with training groups or if you fail to work out in a row you have to sit out two weeks and um i guess on a more practical matter you one way to sort of test some of these ideas if you're not ready to go see a doctor yet is maybe do pull back on your training for a couple of weeks and then see if things improve. Maybe you just needed to recover a little and maybe it was just a little bit too much physical stress. Um, if you get back to it and you're still struggling, then there might be some deeper issues that you want to look for. But by the time you start to see physical manifestations of, sh of sort of chronic stress or you're feeling some of the health problems, chances are you're pretty far down the road and it's going to be time to seek some, some sort of help. Basically anything that's chronically bothering you, period, yeah, yeah. should be in it, you know something that you dig into. Now you mentioned this idea of, you know, if you missed two or if you had two bad workouts that take two weeks off. I mean that may be a little bit of a quick trigger, but there's something to that. I mean usually at that point I start to have conversations with runners to say, okay, well let's first of all ask the first order questions on why you might not be having good workouts. Those first order questions are really simple. Are you going easy enough on your easy runs? Yeah. Are you getting enough sleep? Are you doing the other recovery things that you're supposed to be doing? Are you eating reasonably well or has anything changed? Those are sort of the first order questions. And if it continues, then you start to get into the second order questions, which is to say, okay, well, is there something under the surface that we're not seeing? That's when it's time to go get some blood work done. Which, by the way, as an aside, I'm a I'm a fan as athletes of getting your blood values done frequently. I, I don't think any of us do it frequently enough and get the raw data as well. Because one thing that's tricky, I think, about this, and I, and I would love your opinion on this, Noah, is as an athlete, our standard values are different than what you might want to see in just an average person who's not stressing their body through the hardcore running or the hardcore whatever. And so to understand your baseline and how it fits, but also maybe to understand the scale and how that might need to vary for you is really important. 
you know, vitamin D is the perfect example. You know, you, when I had my stress fracture, you're the one that sort of said, Hey, you should get your vitamin D checked. At the time I got it checked, nor quote unquote normal. If you look at the blood test values is typically 30 and above. I was at 23, I believe. So a little bit below normal, but your reaction to me was, Hey, well, I'd rather see you at 50 because for an athlete that's competing at the level you're competing because vitamin D regulates immune response and helps with recovery. You need to be at 50, not 30, which is quote unquote normal. And so now I'm, I track that fairly regularly to see where I'm at. I'm now over 70 last time I checked, which is thumbs, thumbs up. But talk about the importance of getting your blood values checked frequently. And then how do we know what scale to worry about? Yeah. So I kind of think for most athletes, like three, if you're training pretty heavily, like a minimum of like three times a year is probably what you want. Uh, four would be really good. Quarterly is a, is a good look as you're going through some of your training cycles. And, you know, you kind of hit the, the nail on the head when you're looking at athletes, there's, there's a different scale that you have to look at. So when the medical world is looking at, uh, at, at blood work, they're looking for disease. That's what your doctor is concerned of because that's what they're treating. They're, they're treating disease. And it, it, if there's no disease, then there's not much that they're going to want to do in that area. And so the way that blood values are typically assigned in a lab is there, there's kind of for each value, there, there's kind of this median number that, you're, that, that is set by kind of scientific research and all of that. And then what the, the labs will do is they'll typically go two standard deviations from that kind of median number. And, and that's if you're outside of the two standard deviations from the normal, then you're, you're sick and you have a disease. And so what, what I end up seeing a lot is a lot of symptoms and issues that people deal with will start to manifest outside of the first standard deviation into that second standard deviation. I call them the not quite sick, but not quite well. And so, you know, when they go to the doctor, there's nothing wrong with you. You know, you're just, it's, it's in your head. But what I've seen is as we have, we've tightened these values up for our elite athletes, and I've done a lot more research into each blood marker, trying to figure out, okay, what exactly is this marker testing? What does it mean? What does it do? What's the physiology behind it? And, and where is this window that we want to see in our, our athletes that are optimizing performance? And so oftentimes when it's good to have, you know, okay, I'm not sick, that's good, but how can I take this and maximize the most out of each blood value? Um, and that's what I've, I've kind of done over my years as I've sat down, I'm just a nerd. It's like, I just will sit up in my like office upstairs and I'm just, you know, reading and like researching and writing and trying to figure out, you know, how we can better, you know, just basically bring every little bit of performance out of the blood work and out of those kind of things. And, and what is optimal health versus like disease? So that that's always like the way that I look at it is, you know, the doctors, typical doctors are, are they're treating for disease. And, and there's a lot of people that they that need help in that area and, and those kind of things. But very few people are looking at it from a performance standpoint. And so once and so that that's kind of what I've seen in that area is that you have those two standard deviations. Typically, a lot of athletes are between that second or first and second one with a lot of symptoms and they're not. Um, and, and that's not going to ever get addressed. And, and typically with those, it's some type of a nutritional modification. It's not a drug. It's not anything that, that they need to do. It's just they need to tighten up. You know, I need, you need to take a little more iron, you know, maybe some more B12, 
you know, maybe there's something going on. You need a couple of amino acids to help your liver detoxify better. Uh, something in those areas. And so looking at those and then having the, the, to be able to tighten those windows is the thing that really helps um, people take their training to the next level. By the way, let's talk about vitamin D for a second. Just get, get personal. My doctor is uncomfortable. My, my actual practitioner, my whatever, primary care pr practitioner, that's the word I'm looking for, is uncomfortable with the level of supplementation of vitamin D I do. You got me to start on 8,000 IU a day. I'm at six now after finally getting up to 70 or so. We discovered during that process that I'm actually deficient, or at least I have a genetic abnormality or mutation that affects my ability to absorb vitamin D. But he has not—he has no incentive to want to get me higher than 30 or higher than, certainly not higher than 50. He was uncomfortable seeing me at 70 with the level of supplementation I'm doing. And that's frustrating. But it also, as you say, it's sort of, well, he's, he's worried about C's and not worried about my athletic performance. And so it's a little bit of a different lens that he's putting on things. But one thing I've, but he also pointed me to research to say that, well, supplementation doesn't work. Like vitamin D supplementation, it might change your values, but you're not actually getting the benefits of the added D because I don't know why I'm assuming you've you're familiar with this research but but there would be some that say in general supplementation isn't necessarily effective so what do you say to that so so when you look at vitamin D I've actually that's a marker that I've done a ton of research and so there there's three numbers that you typically see with vitamin D so 20 or under is what they call deficient from 20 to 30 is insufficient and over 30 is like quote unquote considered sufficient but when you go through and you study the amount of research on vitamin d and performance there's actually this exponential curve as far as uh, reduced risk and fractures injuries those kind of things as you get up to 50 and then about 50 it levels off and so one of the things that, that I think, and you kind of hit on it um, as we've talked about, um, is, you know, the, the 8,000, 6,000 IUs, it, it's, it's an alarm. It, it's not, and that's really not that high. Um, to, <laughs> the to, doctors think yeah. it is. So, so a hypervitamin deosis is like, you know, people like, a lot of people in like the health world, it's like, if some is good, more is better. And so that, that's always been like, my thing is like, no, better is better. Like, the, you know, it, it's, we, we call them Goldilocks values where it's like, you know, not too, like not too hard, not too soft, soft, but just right. Yeah. And so, um, you know, you can't have too much vitamin D, but the, the, the amount of research, especially with injuries, um, fractures, those kind of things, immune system regulation, there is still an exponential curve that they've shown for reduction in, in injuries and illnesses and those kind of things in athletes with going from 30 to 50. So 50 for me is kind of like that magic number where there's a, you're, you're basically maximizing all of the benefits of vitamin D without creating this like hypervitamin D-osis um, as well. And then you hit on the genetic thing. And so with vitamin D, everybody asks me, cause it's such a hot topic. They're like, how much do I need to take a day? And I was, and, and that could be, you know, you have somebody who has, you, we talked about, you have a vitamin D receptor defect yep. um, in your, in your, in your genes. And 
basically that means that your body is not absorbed. You probably absorb. Um, were you homozygous or heterozygous, or do you know? I don't know. So, so basically, if you're heterozygous, which means you have um, one chain, like one of the genes is mutated, you're going to absorb vitamin D at 70% of a normal person. If you're homozygous, if both genes are mutated, it's not that you're not going to receive it at all, but you're at 30% of a normal person. So you're going to have to take more vitamin D to be able to facilitate the, the uptake. And so, 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 and so vitamin D typically also needs to be combined with other um, nutrients like your vitamin K, vitamin A, vitamin E. So a lot of times in people who have mutations, taking vitamin D exclusively by itself may not deliver the, the, the actual benefits. And so I kind of look at the fat soluble vitamins, which are your vitamins A, D, E, and K. And they all, they all kind of are, they're, they're, they're drivers. So D is kind of the one that it, it kind of pulls the, the, pulls the, the, your calcium out of your blood and puts it into tissues. But other vitamins like K and A help direct it to like, okay, we need to go specifically in the bone or we need to go into the muscle or, or do those kind of things. So, so sometimes vitamin D by itself is, is, it, it is right. It, it's not enough. And, and there are variables depending on, your genetics, your own nutritional background, and those kind of things. So actually taking vitamin D with some of the other fat-soluble vitamins can actually have a better effect on absorption and the physiologic reaction of regulating the different cells and getting the you know, the vitamin, you know, the, the calcium in the, into the bones and things like that. And people think that that's all vitamin D does is just, you know, take calcium and make bone, but it regulates your immune system, your T cells, all the, all those kind of things. It's more of like a, a pro hormone than it is actually like a quote unquote vitamin. So there's a lot of influence on the area. So those are things to consider when people are saying, you know, there's a, a research that vitamin D doesn't work. There's actually an, I would say an insurmountable evidence that it does um, when you when you look at it and then that there is in those cases where it doesn't where you're selectively picking it's probably because those people need other there's other nutrients that make it work one nutrient doesn't fix one problem it's it's about the whole organism so and the overall arching point for me with that was i found the deficiency with you Started supplementing, got tested again, I believe it was three or four months later. Went from 23 to low 40s after that second test, which basically meant, okay, hey, let's amp it up a little bit to see if we can get over that 50 level. So we did amp it up a little bit and then retested eventually and got to over, you know, that right around 70 value that was, you know, good to go. So then we kind of dialed back again a little bit after that just to make sure I didn't get too much. But the point was that I had those different checkpoints. Now I've got at least three data points and I'll continue to get it checked so that I can find out what are these blood values? How are they trending? How do I need to therefore adjust what I'm doing accordingly to get it into that Goldilocks spot, yes. right? <laughs> but that's, I think, something all of us as endurance assets should be doing is getting our blood values checked Rel relatively frequently as you said three times a year potentially maybe more certainly within periods of heavy training so that we can understand what our own baselines are and then how it trends based on what we're doing around it and the other thing is it's super easy now you can go to these any lab tests now i mean you can basically walk into a strip center and get your blood values checked at any point and it takes 24 hour turnaround that's what 
I've done sometimes if I don't want to go in and see my doctor and do that whole process, which can be very annoying and opaque where they don't want to, they don't want to send you the core report. You know, it's, they just want to give you kind of the high level. You're good without giving you all the raw data versus those lab test place, which will just send you straight up report. So point being, we have access to these resources, use them. Now, Let's talk about blood sugar for a second because obviously diabetes is a chronic problem that's big in our society because of our lifestyle issues. For many athletes, it's not a problem because they're sort of exercising their way out away from that. But blood sugar can still be a problem. And so how does that manifest? So basically what I see in a lot of endurance athletes is they're over their glucose levels are actually typically on the lower side, which is just a, a like artifact of the amount of training and how much they're burning all of that up. But if you look at a marker called hemoglobin A1C, that's basically the glycolated hemoglobin in your body. It's basically the amount of like sugar encrusted like hemoglobin and hemoglobin is the the basically what carries your oxygen in and out of your you know it, it delivers it to and from your your tissues it pulls carbon dioxide out of the tissues delivers oxygen to the tissues everybody knows it like that's the marker they look at for anemia and so there's a there's a hemoglobin a1c that's the glycolated version of it and it basically is how stable your blood sugar has been over about a three-month period and so what I often see in a lot of distance runners when we look at their blood work is that their glucose levels are fine. So they're never going to be diagnosed or they're never going to like even consider blood sugar an issue because they're more on the low side. Um, and most of the medical world is unless you get really low with like actual hypoglycemia, the, most people are only worried about the high side of it. So what ends up happening in a lot of distance runners is they go through these cycles where they're really low and then they kind of rebound up and because of two things either carbohydrate ingestion or release of stress hormone which actually facilitates the release of stored glycogen and then glycogen turns to glucose which is what they measure for blood sugar so when the blood sugar gets too low you either eat a bunch of carbs because you're a little hangry or you feel lightheaded or you know you're refueling or carbo loading and then it's spy or, or you have like the stress hormone response that's like oh man I'm way too low let me get higher again and so it spikes the glucose back up, then insulin at the top level kicks in, and insulin basically takes and puts that glucose into the tissue. It also stops and uh, stops your fat burning, those kind of things. So you, you start to basically create this, this whole stress hormone, insulin-like cycle. And, and, and so people, they, they don't really realize that they have a blood sugar problem, but it's like if you ever ask anybody, like, do you get hangry? Or do you get like like sleepy at certain ports of the day? It's a lot of times that like the the hanger and the sleepiness are because their body is not uh, their blood sugar is not balanced. So if you're looking at eating more of focusing more on like proteins and fats and and, and veggies and trying to find that that optimal carbohydrate load to make sure you're fueled for your workouts. And also eating carbohydrates around your workouts is better because your body can actually break them down and utilize them without as much of an insulin swing. So yeah, the blood sugar becomes an issue for most endurance athletes because of the, we call it reactive hypoglycemia, where they go like low, then the body kicks it back up, then it goes low. So that ends up just creating like a massive amount of stress on your hormonal system. 
and on uneven energy levels too, I would assume yeah. that you're probably associating with hard exercise. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's like, oh, I had a long run this morning. Of course, I'm crashing this afternoon. When actually it could be, yes, you're tired, but also your blood sugar's out of whack. This seems to be one of the reasons why, um, or, or at least for me, and I see this a lot with athletes, I would eat like six or seven times a day too. And, um, basically my blood sugar would get low and I'm like, okay, I'm hungry. I need to eat something. And then I would eat, uh, some, some sort of snack that was rich in carbohydrates and, or have like that two o'clock afternoon coffee with sugar in it. And then I'm like, all right, I'm good for 30 minutes. (laughs) Yeah. So, (laughs) so I think that's an interesting, that's like a, a super interesting comment that, that you make Jason, because, you know, we have that recommendation that it's, for your blood sugar, it's better to eat more like smaller meals mm-hmm. regularly, yeah. which is actually not, it, it, it keeps you more level, that's for sure. But it's also masking basically an inability of your body to run off of body fat. Correct. Um, and, and so if you always have a supply of, of glucose, your body's never going to really start to go through the process of what's called beta oxidation, which is the release of your basically own fat for energy. And so, and most people just aren't really good at it because of what we talked about, those, those different, the, the cortisol, epinephrine and insulin swings that their body goes through. So yeah, they, I mean, functionally to like basically not fly off the handle at anybody or fall asleep, you know, driving, they, they have to eat regularly to support those. But there's, there's different things you can do with your diet and those kind of things that help to facilitate your body's ability to basically utilize more like free fatty acids for like at rest and those kind of things. And then also things you can do with your training that actually help to facilitate um, your body's ability to basically use fat more efficiently um, to basically be able to process oxygen. And so one of the big things is, is like, uh, well, you, you kind of talked about like looking at blood work. So I would say roughly 85% of the female athletes that I've ever tested their blood work are functionally anemic. And so I look at anemia as a different way. Obviously it's a performance detriment, but it's basically like your body doesn't have enough oxygen. And in order to break down fat and carbohydrates, you need oxygen. So, so the back up to the, the blood work combo is like that anemia doesn't allow you to like to be able to stabilize your blood sugar because you don't have enough oxygen delivered to the tissue to basically be able to combust fat and carbohydrates. So that's kind of where we get into this whole, you know, like to, to this whole cycle. And so there's things that obviously like diet, nutrition and, and supplementation that you can do. And we're not talking like fat burners, anything like that. We're talking about fixing your your actual biochemistry, not stimulating with like raspberry ketones and right. hootia and, you know, like all those kind of things like that. Because, I mean, effectively, we're talking about metabolic inflexibility. Yeah. Right? Like at this point, our body has really lost the ability to consume fat as an energy but also oftentimes in the insulin resistant you're you're also struggling to process carbohydrates yep and so you're you're riding that wave all day of like i need to eat more carbohydrates because i'm using 
only a small percentage of what I'm actually consuming. And this, I talked about this in the last episode, but as athletes, we can mask these symptoms of insulin resistance because we're exercising a lot. And so in, in an obese person or a type two diabetic, what you'll see is that they're gaining weight because they can't do anything with all the carbohydrates that they're eating. And they're continuing to eat more because they're not doing shit with the fuel except for storing it as fat. And so, um, we will get into this conversation about metabolic flexibility, but it's kind of clawing your way back to the middle of that metabolic spectrum where I can process, I, my body can use both fuel, uh, sorry, both fat and carbohydrate or glycogen for fuel. And so when I'm in a rest and digest state or running a recovery effort somewhere around that, that maximum aerobic function we talked about, I can burn fat. Um, and use oxygen and fat for fuel versus all, my body always kind of trying to run off of carbohydrate and maybe sometimes not doing it well. Is that what we're talking about when we talk about fat adapted athletes? Or so is that is that it? Yeah, fat, yeah, I don't know. Fat fat adaptation is kind of like um, I don't know. It's a strange concept now. There's a lot wrapped up in it, but more or less, yes. Like. You could think, and and we talk about this in the context of metabolic flexibility, is um, maybe ketogenic dieting at a period in your training, if you're doing like base building or something, is a way to push fat adaptation truly as an adaptation. Like I want to push my body to get better at fueling on fat. And for a lot of us, we're not very good at it, depending on what our dietary paradigm has been like. And so you can do it. You do it as an adaptation process, but when we talk about metabolic flexibility, that's more of, for me anyway, a sort of lifestyle approach. Like I'm making sure that I'm living in a way where my body can switch between fuel sources depending on what I'm doing at any given time. So what does that mean, though? How do you get there? I mean, that's Pandora's box, I realize, but give <laughs> us some, give us some, some examples. I mean, for me, I start with the paleo diet. I, I think that it is the best way to balance macronutrients and get the micronutrient sufficiency that you need. And then um, I think strategically about when I consume higher concentrations of carbohydrates, depending on what I'm doing with my training at any given time. And so if I you know, have a big workout on a Saturday coming up I'll eat a sweet potato on Friday and then maybe have some like a peanut butter banana before the workout um, and then use carb supplements when I'm what would I say intro workout and I try to go for some kind of low glycemic starchy carb product and so I mean that's probably for me the big thing I you know I think that paleo gives you kind of the middle of the road dietary approach where you're still eating carbohydrates, but you're basically cutting out all processed and refined foods, especially processed and refined carbohydrates. But I got vegetables, fruit, because I'm an endurance athlete, I eat a lot of fruit, all of it. Um, and I, it's a great source of fiber as well, which, you know, you're not getting as much fiber when you're not on a car carbohydrate rich diet, but there's still plenty in the foods we eat every day. And then meat eat a lot of meat um because that's where a lot of your amino acids are going to come from a lot of your protein a lot of your fat is going to come from that did i answer the question y yeah so diet is one way yeah but in some ways i think it's i mean is it 
is it right to conceptualize it as a little bit of a switch in that because I've, I've been in these places where I get in the, you know, and again, I'm a high performing athlete, but I have a sweet tooth <laughs> and, and especially when I'm getting in, getting into heavy training, I can have a tendency to overdo it on processed foods and sugars, especially because I, I get hungry. I'm like, man, I just crushed the workout. Like, yes, all the cookies. But when I get to a more level headed place and that pushes me into a place where I crave more, right? Like where I just can't control it. So then I have to go into what I call a little bit of a reset <laughs> where I have to consciously choose to avoid that stuff altogether for a period of time. And then that allows me to not only physically not crave it anymore, but mentally not feel like I need it anymore. Like an addiction type type state kind of goes away. And so then the switch goes off and then I have control again. And so I sort of feel like we're in this like, on off kind of place for a lot of people and if they can just turn the switch off however they need to and that can come in different forms i think for some people it might need to go they might need to go keto to get there for some people it might just be a dietary switch like you're talking about for others it could be more extreme intervention i don't know but it's like there's a switch you got to turn off yeah so uh, you talk touch on a couple of things here that are important so for one sugars and a lot and you know processed and refined carbohydrates are addicting i get and what happens is that our body will preferentially consume and fuel off of glycogen and carbohydrates over fat because it's easier, um, especially if we're in a really stressed out state. And so um, the you path know, of least resistance. Right. And so fat adaptation, it's a little bit harder to achieve. And so some people um, so, I, you know, I don't have a problem with sugar anymore. I did. <laughs> I had a really bad problem with sugar. Like I probably consumed a hundred grams of sugar a day and I don't even have that many grams of carbohydrates in total a day now. And that was just sugar. Um, and, and so for me, it's been a long path to recovery. I'm still not <laughs> there. I'm probably now I'm four and a half or five months down the road of, of pretty strictly adhering to a paleo diet. I mean, I have a little sugar every once in a while. Like I like to have a cookie or go get some ice cream from time to time. But I, you know, I, I feel the effect of that now. I feel it fuck up my stomach. And um, it takes a couple of days to get over the inflammation. But when we, when we try to fat adapt, if you will, it takes a lot. It's, it's not a, an overnight process. Like it doesn't just shift. You can block out the sugar cravings and addiction if you change a little bit, but just because you went 10 days on like a sugar-free cleanse or whatever, one, you haven't overcome the effects of, of regularly consuming sugar and processed and refined carbohydrates, but you also certainly have not made the shift to effectively adapting your body to feeling off of fat and making that something that you can readily go to, right? So like, what do I, what I eat? Like somebody who has a flexible metabolism can drive their primary fuel source on the day based on what they eat in the morning when they wake up. Um, and so that like, a, a I like to say a flexible metabolism is a healthy metabolism and you have to work on that every day. Uh, so it's not necessarily a switch. And we'll talk about in episode three, all of that in full detail. So I won't, 
I won't go there too much now. Last thing I want to cover, last question, and I'll direct this at you, but both of you, which is that I know there's going to be some people that are listening to this, even if they made it this far, and are still thinking, this is fucking crazy shit. <laughs> like, this is like woo-woo, weird stuff. Like, there's there's no basis in any of this stuff. It's not scientific. This, these guys are not doctors. And by the way, please consult your own practitioners. We're not trying to counsel anyone on their individual health issues with this discussion we're just trying to raise awareness on this topic but there are those that are going going to say this is this is crazy what do you say to those people so i i think for for me i've worked with a number of of you know over the past 10 years probably you know close to you know 15 to fifteen thousand people you know every year and we've had everything from people who you know were just trying to get into exercise and those kind of things to athletes that have medaled at the olympics and have you know basically been at the, the highest pinnacle of of performance um so for me it's the the, the research and, and everything that i look at it's i is is based in research and all of the def the different things that we do in our office i've always tried to back up with basically the approved clinical research or clinical testing that would back up and validate maybe my different way of looking at things. And, and so for me, it's like I've got all these case studies from you know working with thousands of different people over the past 10 years to, you know, to the, the performances. I mean, we've, we've had athletes do stuff that nobody else has done. Um, in, in the athletics world and running world and those kind of things. And it's been awesome to be a part of a team. And that's the whole thing that I think for everybody. It's like, there's no one person who's going to solve your whole problem. It's like, you've got to develop a team of people. And that's what we have. We have, you know, on, on that, that I work with, we have everything from medical doctors to dentists to physical therapists to, you know, psychologists, psychiatrists, um, you know, mental health people. All, all kinds of things. And, and I don't ever want to be the end all be all. I'm just kind of, I love sharing what I've seen be really successful and really help a lot of people in, in my practice. And, and I think that people are looking for, in, in my, and just kind of my experience, people are looking for other ways to be healthy. And, and basically like we're, we're in this trend right now where people want to maximize what they can do with their, you know, if I'm going to train for a marathon, I want to try to get my PR. If I, you know, like if I'm going to like be healthy, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm trying to learn how to do all of these things. So, so for me, I, I've tried to really drive most of what we do based on like science and research. And I'm always trying to stay up on the top of all of those things. And, and we do have, we, we have a ton of medical professionals and people that see us as patients and also refer to us. So I don't, I think sometimes it's, it's a little change of thinking, but I think that, you know, it will it, definitely the, the proofs in the pudding with, with what we've been able to accomplish so far in our, in our practice. To me, it's fine to be a skeptic and a cynic. I'm naturally cynic by nature, but it's not okay to be closed minded because there's smart people that are talking about these topics and there are views beyond just the view we get from Western medicine that are important. And, and I think you have to be open-minded about that. And for those that are skeptics, fine, be a skeptic, but then be open-minded and step into it with a practitioner, step into it with somebody locally who can help expose you to these things on a problem that might be, more complicated to solve and then see where you end up it may or may not work for you and if it does 
awesome. If it doesn't, keep seeking. But there's more lenses to view this, all of these problems than just our standard Western worldview. And that's, that's basically what we're trying to expose people to is just broaden their horizons. And again, it's okay to be skeptic, but then absolutely be open-minded <laughs> at the same time and yeah. step into it with an open mind and see where you end up. All right. With that, any final thoughts, Jason? We, so Noah and I have asked ourselves that same question. And, um, I think we, we've kind of talked about going out of our way to go down the rabbit hole on the whole woo woo sort of thing. But, you know, I do want to drive home the point that it is an evidence-based approach in this philosophy. And it's also a first do no harm kind of approach. So, I mean, personally, I would never ask an athlete that I work with to do something that I think could possibly cause them harm. Right. Um, and I'm not going to ask them to do something that I just cocked up or cooked up in my head as some cockamamie scheme. It's, this is tough because we're inculcated in this culture of Western medicine where it's like really the only approach you have coming up because we have this insurance system in America. This is where I'm going to get conspiracy theory here for oh, a minute. No. Here we go. <laughs> you, so like we all grow up. You know, my parents had a primary care physician and then they got a doctor for us kids to go and see. And then, you know, the, everything is covered by insurance. So you go and see Western medis, medical professionals because that's what your insurance covers. And we all just we come up in that. Right. And that's the paradigm that we know coming up. But we're not exposed to alternative medical philosophies. And so now when, you know, somebody maybe says, you could fix a lot of your problems through diet and sleep and a little less stress. It's hard to understand that. Right. When like <laughs> all my life, all the blood chemistry I had done was to figure out how much Ritalin was in my bloodstream at the time, mm. whether or not I was actually taking the medication. Right. And like, none right. of it is about, are you healthy? What are your health markers? What are some other ways non-invasively that we could drive those health markers? And so I get that it will be tough. And a lot of what we're saying is challenges conventional wisdom. And so, you know, keep an open mind, um, and try it out. I mean, for, for me, fundamentally, I've been able to change my life radically over the last couple of years by reducing stress and improving my general lifestyle, sleeping more, um, eating better, exercising regularly, taking time to play and be with my family and connect with people and nature and taking mental breaks. Well, and I would ask, what's more extreme, taking a pill to deal with some problem or making some lifestyle changes that might actually allow you to avoid so-called medication. So as we say, keep an open mind and we'll keep stepping through these topics. We'll talk in our third episode in this series on diet. So we'll get down that rabbit hole with the next episode. As always, thanks to Jason and Noah for joining me on this little mini series. This has been a special edition episode talking about the human performance project and we'll wrap it up here. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.